Okay, well, we've come in our study through the book of Genesis as far as uh, chapter 28, uh, which we're going to be picking up with now. Let's just, just bow our hearts just one more time as we, we come to God's word, shall we? Father, I just ask your blessing upon this time of study. Father, I pray that you fill me afresh with your spirit now, and Lord, just speak through me. Lord, may the words that I speak not just be my own ramblings, but Father, may it be led and directed of your spirit, that we would grow together. Father, we thank you that your word is living and powerful. And Lord, we need to be changed. We need more of you, more of your word, Lord, to permeate our, our thinking and, and our whole lives. So we just pray now that you meet us where we are. But Lord, don't leave us there, but cause us to grow in knowledge and grace because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, this chapter we're going to see uh, initially some departures. Okay, so the first uh, we see is this uh, departure of Jacob, who's going to make this 450 mile or thereabouts trip, going up to see Uncle Laban. Uh, his uh, mum, Rebecca, is going to send him away or is instigating him being sent away uh, to go and to spend some time with her brother now that she assumes it's just going to be a very short period of time. It turns out to be about 20 years. And as we said last time, he'll never get to see his mum again. But the second spiritual, second departure is a spiritual departure, uh, and we see it with Esau. He's already married to Hittite wives, uh, and he's now going to compound this problem further. His disregard, in a sense, for the things of God. Uh, I just want to read to you a, a quote from a, a chap this, uh, some years ago, but he said Esau is described as departing even further from the Lord. He had married Hittite wives and tried to undo what he felt had displeased his father. He now married descendants of Ishmael, the other son of Abraham, who was outside the Messianic line. It is so characteristic of, of men that they try to undo one evil by doing another evil thing. This is what Esau did. He thought it would please his father if he took a wife from the tribe of Ishmael. But this simply indicates how spiritually obtuse Esau was. He could not get the point. He couldn't understand what God was going to work in a, sorry, that God was going to work in a certain way and that he needed to align himself with God's will rather than try to work according to his own conception of right. That's quite poignant because in this world today, so many people try to do what they think is right and they want God to kind of side with them. It's not how it works. Let's jump into the text. We read Isaac called Jacob. And blessed him. Now, the first blessing that uh, Jacob received of Isaac, he did it through deceit, through pretending that he was his brother Esau. Remember, uh, at the instigation of Rebecca, he gets dressed up and puts on uh, Esau's clothing and kind of goat skin on his arms and things to try and make himself appear like Esau, his brother, who we're told was a very hairy man. And I wonder quite how hairy if he could be kind of covered in goat skin and pass off as his brother but nevertheless uh, he deceives his father into giving him a blessing whether or not Isaac had an inclination we don't know but here clearly Isaac knows exactly what he's doing and, and really you have to kind of ask the the, the validity of the whole of that that chapter uh, that we previously looked at in terms of what those people did what Jacob did and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah you know, God still had his plan, as we said last time. Had Jacob not have gone through with that request of Rebecca's, would it have changed anything? Would God's plan have come undone? No. So again, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And this is something that we'll see now throughout the Old Testament, that God wants his people to remain separate. But it's not just a... a, a, a 
semantics thing or it's not just a, a, a racial thing here. There's far more. This is a spiritual thing. If you remember, the inhabitants of Canaan were largely the descendants of the Nephilim. This is what we read about in Genesis 6. There was a gene problem in the land. And God was very keen that Satan's plan to try and corrupt this line down to the Messiah didn't come to any fruition whatsoever. And so God makes it very clear to Abraham and to his descendants that they are to remain separate all the way through down of ultimately till the Messiah came. Now, verse 2 says, Arise, go to Paran Aram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou may be a multitude of people. Now, in a sense of reiteration of the promises already been given to Abraham here, but of course for Jacob to be fruitful in the context that's been spoken of here, he would need to marry. And this is exactly what Isaac is saying. Now, any parent, if your child is still living at home with you when they're 77 years old, you're probably keen that they leave the house and they go and find a wife or a husband, depending on. So Isaac basically is just telling Jacob, go find a wife. But of course, there's more to it than just that. As I said, Jacob about 77 years old at this point. But he's leaving for two reasons. One, because he's honoring his father and, and, and fulfilling this request. But also, he knows that his life is in danger. If you remember in the previous uh, chapter we saw in chapter 27, that Esau comforted himself in the fact that when Isaac was dead, he was going to kill Jacob. He was taking comfort in that. Now, that's got to be a bit of a concern for young 77-year-old Jacob at this point, to know that his brother's looking forward to killing him. And so this is the other reason that he's fleeing home at this point. The blessing carries on. And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayst inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger... Just want to highlight that the land at this point wherein Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dwelling, they are strangers at this point. It's not their land. That's very, very important when we come to look at that whole sojourn down in Egypt when Jacob will eventually go with Joseph and the rest of the family. Because there is this consensus among scholars uh, that they spent 400 years or 430 years down in Egypt. That's not the case. And we'll look at that in detail a little bit further on in our studies. Um, but they spent, well, in fact, the whole time from the call of Abraham up until the giving of the law, that period is a period of 430 years. It's made clear in the New Testament in the book of Galatians. The reason I just say that is that this underlines the fact that even at this point, the promised land was not theirs. It's not until the time of the conquest of Joshua that the land actually becomes theirs. And for good reason. As I mentioned a moment ago, the whole situation is recorded in Genesis 6. There were giants in the earth in those days and also afterward. And afterward, after the flood, those giants, those Nephilim, uh, descended uh, on the whole area of Canaan, specifically to try and stop God's plan, to stop the Messiah coming. And God said to Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites, the inhabitants of the land, was not yet complete. It was the waiting, there was a time period. Um, and God said, in the fourth generation, he'll bring you back. And again, that happened. So Isaac was sent, and Isaac sent away Jacob. And he went to Padan Aram, unto Laban, the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Just to give you an idea, they're down in Beersheba, down the bottom, just to, slightly to the uh, west of the Dead Sea. 
which is where they've kind of made camp at this point. Horan, you can see way up there, and this is the journey that they're going to take all the way up there. Some of it, or Jacob's going to take on his own, uh, somewhere, as I say, around about 450 miles. And when he saw, saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, he sent him away, uh, sorry, and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take him a wife from thence. And that he blessed him and gave him a charge saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob obeyed his father and mother and was gone to Padanaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac, his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto, uh, sorry, and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, a sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife. These names we stumble over as we try to mispronounce them. Interesting, we'll talk about them in just a second. Is it, but he's seeking the blessings. He's just looking for the things that, that God is going to, to give to him. He's not looking at the whole issue of obedience. He sees initially here that, that Jacob has been blessed. And he's like, I want some of that. You know, there's too many people that see God as being kind of a master card than just their master. They're looking for something they can get something from. You know, and again, he noticed that Jacob has obeyed his father and mother, uh, but just sees it purely in the, the natural sense of just going and marrying wives from the family, in a sense, uh, in this context. Well, after 30 years of grieving his parents because of his wife, then, or the current wives, uh, we find he takes a wife from the line of Ishmael. Uh, and again, this is all symbolic of the work of the flesh. This is all just what he's doing, trying to make it look on the surface that he's right or doing the right thing. And interestingly, this Mahaleth, the name means, in the Hebrew means sickness. It's interesting because her sister is mentioned here, and her sister's name is fruitfulness. And it just seems interesting that maybe there was a choice, I don't know. But he chooses sickness over fruitfulness. And I think that's a real, in a sense, a type of exactly what he does in his life here. Rather than seeking that which is honoring and glorifying to God, he seeks that which is purely just for his own benefit and blessing. That's what he's, he's seeking. You know, Esau is very much a case of, uh, of the people that look like they're doing the right thing on the surface, but their heart is not right. You know, there's a lot of people that, that call themselves Christians. You know, and they take the name because they think it's the right thing. They think it makes it look right. But you know, the Bible says that even Satan transforms himself into ministers of, or Satan's uh, servants, uh, his fallen angels, transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. You know, to try and deceive and to pull people away. You know, even Satan's servants come across as ministers, adopting that name of Christian or whatever. You know, just because somebody has the name, it doesn't mean that the heart is in the right place. And Esau is a great example of this. Verse 30, oh sorry, verse 10, sorry. Uh, and Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So uh, what we're going to see is this journey all the way up to the top there, as we just noted. But um, Beersheba, they're going to do this journey as a stopping point at Bethel on the way. Now, Bethel, we've already looked at this place before. Bethel, it means the house of God. El being the contraction of the name of God in Hebrew. And Beth, simply the name means house, as in Bethlehem, the house of bread and praise. Or Bethlehem, Judah, the house of bread and praise. And he's going to stop at this place. And this is going to be quite an interesting situation we see. It's about a 50-mile journey, possibly a two-day journey to this point. Again, there's no helicopters, planes, or trains in these days. Everything was done by foot or uh, camel or horseback or whatever. But, and he lighted 
upon a certain place, we're told. Now, the implication here, this is just a, a, a happenstance. Of course, God is directing the whole of this journey. But the way that this is given to us is he just happened to arrive at a certain place. And we're told, and he tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Seems like a, a reasonable place. Now, this, this place was previously uh, known as Luz. You may remember that from uh, the scriptures we've already seen. As I said, it's about a 50-mile journey up from Beersheba. Again, he's homesick. He's running away. He comes to this place that effectively is pretty much deserted. It could well be that one of these stones that are there were the remnants of the town of Luz that had once been there. And he comes to this place. And no doubt, it's getting the evening, it's getting cold, he wants to, to settle down and sleep. And probably somewhat confused in his heart, why has God allowed these things? Was he even thinking about God at this point? But then we're told, verse 12, that as he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. I mean, this is an incredible experience that Jacob is having at this point. Now, what is his state of mind? Well, we know already that he's deceived his father. That brought about this whole situation in the first place of him having to flee. Clearly, it seems that he's disappointed his mother. He's enraged his brother and has been forced to leave home. Very much up until this point, he's been guided by other people's visions. But now God is going to speak to him. And this really becomes a major turning point in his life. We read, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, and the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. Just to be paused for a second, think of all the skullduggery that went into him trying to obtain that blessing. And here comes God, giving it freely. You know, so often we strive for things, don't we? If we're just patient and we wait for God, hear God promising all these things. Verse 14, And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And what a statement. Again, just this reiteration of the promises given to Abraham, and obviously reiterated to Isaac, and now personally given by God himself to Jacob. Now, it's interesting, if we just turn, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John, chapter 1. Because this is where John, in John's Gospel, we see the calling of the disciples. And it's just an interesting allusion that seems to uh, tie in with this. We see the calling of Philip in verse 45 of John, chapter 1. In fact, I'm going to read from verse 43. It says, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and finally Philip, and said unto him, Follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip, finding Nathanael, said unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know, sometimes you say something and, and you know, you're so excited and you say it and it just doesn't quite have the same import as someone else. And, and clearly, Nathanael just replies, verse 46, and says unto him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see kind of Philip thinking about what he's just said. And, you know, at this point, Nazareth was a fairly small city, nothing big, nothing uh, of note. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said unto him, come and see. It seemed to own eyes. And 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Well, that takes Nathanael a little bit by surprise, because he said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, that's to say teacher, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. There's, there's a lot in this that we could draw out maybe some of the time, but you just you see there that connection as Jesus calls his name, as he realized that Jesus knows him. And what a moment for us when we come to that place of realizing that Jesus knows us. He, he knows us better than we know ourselves, and he calls us. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said unto him, because I say unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Just because of that. But thou shalt see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter shall you, uh, shall see, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God, notice this, ascending and descending upon who? Upon the Son of Man. And I just share that with you because I think it's interesting in this context because we told verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it. This is Jesus. This is the one, the, the, the second person of the Trinity that we see here, represented. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. And it's interesting because this promise is being given from this context, from Jesus, a pre-incarnate version or form of Jesus in a sense, the second person of the Trinity, knowing that ultimately Jesus himself will be the one that will rule and reign in this land. And for now, the keys are being handed over to Jacob. You know, I kind of feel like this morning I was just praying and thinking before we came down here. You know, it's a funny thing in a sense when in, in this role of being a pastor because you sometimes put pressure on yourself or, or maybe it's there, maybe it's not, of, of feeling you should be better than you are. You know, and I sometimes I feel a bit of an imposter because I just, I'm kind of standing in until the real teacher gets here. Because ultimately, in eternity, it will be Jesus that will be teaching us. You know, that's one of the reasons I've said before to some of the other pastors I know that lead worship in their fellowships as well. I kind of don't want to put the guitar down just yet. Because in heaven, we're all going to be involved in the worship. But the role of teaching, that's going to come to an end. There won't be any need for, for pastors and teachers because Jesus will be doing the teaching. And what an incredible thing to learn from him. Incredible. So... Jesus is going to rule and reign over the whole earth and his kingdom will be centered in Jerusalem. And here he is saying to Jacob, giving you the keys for now, I'm trusting it to you. This is going to be yours and your descendants. Just overwhelming blessing. Thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth and thou shalt spread abroad as we just read to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And of course, because of Jesus, we know that promise to be true. In fact, that's true on a number of levels because the whole earth has been blessed because of Israel, because of the Jews, and for a number of reasons. And still is, even in today in terms of uh, the scientists and the, the medical experts and the discoveries. Uh, I'm sure some of you get various publications. Uh, I was subscribed for many years to a publication called Lamp and Light. Some of you may be familiar with it. And I was always amazed how the, there was a section each uh, month on the discoveries that have been made in Israel. 
by Israel or Israelis around the world. And just, just at the cutting edge of technology and medicine and all these kind of things that are a blessing to the whole earth. God still has his hand upon that people. What's the, the meaning of the ladder? Well, in one sense, we could say that Jesus is that bridge between God and lost mankind. I mean, Jesus here in this scene, effectively bringing Jacob back, giving him some direction, some purpose. We said a moment ago that his life up until this point had been very much the opinions of others dictating his actions and his path. Now, Jesus steps in, and Jesus becomes that bridge that will get Jacob and God talking effectively. And isn't it the same with each of us? None of us would have a relationship with God if it wasn't for Jesus. And notice again, it's not man reaching up to God, but God reaching down to man. I think it was Louis Palau some years ago. In fact, this is way back when I was at school. And I had this, this on my, my, uh, one of my school, uh, RE books. And I just kind of cut it out and stuck it on there. And it says that religion is God searching for man. Christianity is, sorry, uh, religion is man searching for God. But Christianity is God revealing himself to man. And that's the difference. You know, Christianity is, is a relationship, it's a revelation that God meets us where we are. He doesn't ask us to do things, to crawl for miles on our knees, or to do all sorts of things that so many people do, thinking that it's just like Esau, in a sense, the right thing. And behold, this is the kind of statement you, you want to hear, isn't it? Behold, I am with thee. Even more poignant, because at this point, Jacob is on his own. He's all alone at this point. And God says, Jesus says to him, Behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Now, it's so easy to read this and just kind of carry on, but we need to understand the impact that this is going to have on Jacob because we see a dramatic change in his character and the way he lives his life from this point on. This really is a a big, big moment for him because we start to see him in the decisions he makes trusting God, allowing God to provide for him in in incredible and even bizarre ways as, as we'll go on and see. But he starts to step back. I go, you know what, Lord? You met me. You said that you were with me and that you were going to keep me wherever I go. And actually, you're going to bring me back to this place. And Jacob, I waked out of his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. Well, there's nothing special specifically about that place. God is with us, around us, wherever we go. We can't escape his presence. Psalm 139. It's that great prayer that David cries out. Where can we flee from his presence? You know, we, we can't flee from, from God's presence. And that's not to say, just let me clarify, we're not saying that, that everything is God, that kind of pantheistic idea. No, no, not at all. No, God is a person. But we can never get away from God. And God wasn't just in this place, as, as Jacob says here, although that's Jacob's perception. And in verse 17 he says, And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Of course, the place was named Bethel, the house of God. But you know, there wasn't anything specifically special about that place. We'll talk more in a second. This is going to be one of seven occasions that the Lord will actually appear to Jacob. And we read verse 18, And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar 
poured oil upon the top of it. And they called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. Okay, so just like Abraham and Isaac, God makes his vow personal. And again, that promise, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go. And God repeats the, the substance of their promises. Now, these are the key things again. The land in which you lie is going to be given to you and your descendants. And concerning the seed, in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's very specific how that blessing is to come. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, this is great, this is, just, this is what we do. If God will be with me, well, he's just said he's going to. We don't have to if, uh, but if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I'll go. And, so this is almost like now kind of little conditions for God. And will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. Well, God didn't specifically promise any of those things other than general blessing. But it's almost like we, we have to think about the practical aspects of these things, don't we? So that I come again to my father's house in peace, by the way, because my brothers don't want to kill me. Then shall the Lord be my God. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it, how gracious God is. And God doesn't just wipe him out here and destroy him. God seemingly just accepts this, this little condition that Jacob's kind of putting down. Well, Lord, I, I will. You can be my God, but you've got to make sure that I'm okay. I've got to have enough food and clothes. Uh, that, that's important. I've got to be able to pay my mortgage. All those kind of things are really important to me. And, 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 and peace. I, I don't want my brother to kill me. Look, God's in control. He's already said that he's going to be with you wherever you go. He's going to bring you back to this land. You know, this is that scenario. I think you may have kind of heard this before. But, you know, it's that imagine the scenario before the foundation of the world. And you have this incredible privilege of being granted an audience with God. And God calls you and says, right, on this big sheet of paper, there's a pen. Go write down everything you want for your life. Think about all the, the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations you have. Think about family and children and whatever you think is important to you, career, you write it all down. Everything you want. And you go and you spend hours and you list everything you think, can possibly think of you want for your life. And then you come back and say, God says, right, well, that's my plan for your life. That's your plan. Choose one. You see, who, who of us really would, would opt for our own plan when God, the creator of all things, the God who is love, the God who is peace has given us his plan. You see, so often we, we go with what we think we know. And really, Jacob is very much on that line. Just trying to think about the practical aspects of being called to follow God. And don't we do that? God calls us to follow him and we try to think about the practical world. What about, and you know, no, no, God will always provide. God will give us whatever we need. We just need to be faithful. Notice it also, and this stone that I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. <laughs> what is it that we read in the end of the book of Isaiah? <laughs> Where is the house that you will make for me? We, we can't make a house for God, certainly not out of some stones, not out of a building. It's amazing even to this day how many people think church is the building. You know, they think that going to church is something we do and we, when we step inside the building that place is holy and, and so on. Yeah, the church is the body of Christ. That's the church. But Jacob takes his stone, he sets it up, he says, this is going to be God's house. And, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. And you can imagine God sitting there in heaven going, well, that's going to really help. Thanks very much. 
you know, we, we try to give to God. And, you know, people will use this, and of course, you know, we find under the, the Jewish law that the Jews were to give a tenth of everything. A tenth of all their increase and so on to God. And that, that was, that was fine. Jacob here saying, I'll give to God a tenth. God, God's looking for, doesn't want a tenth, he wants all. I mean, that's clearly already what, what God is calling Jacob out of this life of trusting his own decisions. To put his trust in God. You know, when it comes to, to tithing or to giving or whatever else, you know, don't just give a tenth, give, it, give all to God. Your whole heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's how we should love the Lord our God. Now, if, if you want a numerical figure in terms of uh, giving financially, then tenth typically is, is one that's used. But that doesn't mean that you give a tenth to God and then the rest of it, the other 90%, you can do whatever you like with. You know, everything you buy, everything you do with your time, everything you do with even your thought life should be God's. And you should be running it by that checklist of, is this for the glory of God? Now, God doesn't object to us having nice things, material things. There's no problem there. God establishes, even way back earlier in the book of Genesis, the right of personal ownership. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, it's wrong if those things become a priority in our life and they force God out. That becomes a real problem. But ownership of things is not a problem in and of itself. But why do we have the things that we have? And are they there for God's glory? You know, I remember um, not long after I started working for, for BT many years ago, I was in a position, I was a young single person still living at home with mum and dad, and I was able to go and buy a new car. It wasn't anything special, it was just a, an Astra estate. I got this estate car because at the time I was drumming. And... I needed something to move the drums around, but the reason I wanted that was because we were going out and playing places to preach, effectively, through the songs and through ministry to before and after concerts and things we were doing. And so that's why I wanted the car. But then I was also, at the time, I was involved in the, the youth ministry. I was a youth leader back at the Fellowship in Deal. And then every Friday night, the, the kids would pile into the car and I would take them, some of them home. There was a few of us who used to go and drop the kids off that didn't have parents who could pick them up. So we used to go and take them home. And you know what kids are like. They've got, you know, mucky shoes and they'll put them shoes all over the back of your car. Doesn't matter how many times you say, please don't put your shoes in the back of the car. They still do it. It's like a challenge, I think, for them. You know, and, and, and the car did get quite messed up inside with both the drums going in and out and the children going in and out. And over, I think it was just over, just under a four-year period, actually, uh, we did over 80,000 miles in the car, just traveling around. And nearly all of that was was going to and from practices with the band and places we played. But, you know, it, it didn't matter. The fact that you know, some people buy a car and everything's, you keep it pristine and, you know, you, you see people out on a Sunday, you probably, if the rain stops today, you see people out there washing their cars today rather than coming to church. That becomes so important to them, their possessions. You know, for me, that was purely just a means to an end. It was something that I had that I wanted to use for God's glory, and I was very grateful that I was able to buy it. But I used it for God. That vehicle went, another vehicle came. Again, was running to the ground almost for, for the things of God. But what I'm saying is that the purpose of all that is that, that whatever we have we should be asking ourselves, how are we using it for God's glory? Whatever the blessings God has given you in your life, your house, your home, your, your possessions, your time, how are you using it for God's glory? 
It's not just about a tenth. This stone thing is also interesting because Jacob making this place something very special. And okay, I get that because we do the same thing. You probably have moments and experiences in your life that have been really very, very special. Yeah, where you've, you've had a moment or, or a time where you really felt close to God. And very often the location of that can have a bearing. It may be you've been to a conference, a Christian conference, or, or a particular worship service or something. You know, for me, it's, it's places like Creation Fest I get to go. And you have just great fellowship. There's something lovely about spending, you know, a week or so around Christians. And you don't hear anybody swearing. There's no drinking. You know, it's just a lovely environment. And you're walking past people and they're just talking about God. And it's really sad when you kind of step back into the world the week after and it's like, whoa, this is a shock. And, you know, so, so places like that can become quite special. But that in itself is not the thing. Just like here, Bethel wasn't the place. It was, it was because God met Jacob there. You know, I saw a, uh, an episode of um, Bargain Hunt. Some of you may be familiar with uh, that particular program. And it was done from the Royal Cornwall Showground. I was so disappointed because I saw the big shed that they have a lot of the, the meetings in. and th- There was nothing there. There was no stage. There was no lights. There was no carpet down. There was just lots of tables and people selling things. And it was just like, but, but that's where I go and that's where we praise God. And it just felt wrong that they would, you know, of course, it's just a venue. It's just a, a showground. They use it for all things all, all year round. But you see, we get attached to locations. And what I'm saying is, it's not necessarily wrong to, to have places and even, even moments in our lives that we can think back on. Just like Jacob will for this place. But don't get so attached to those things and think there's something special in and of themselves. Because it's God. And you know, the incredible thing, you can meet with God anywhere. You can have that same experience of, of fellowshipping with the Lord. Of being close to him, of knowing his blessings wherever you are. Oh, see, real worship is the result of witnessing God's greatness. And Jacob kind of just sees a glimpse of that here. But, you know, his response, as we've just been saying, is really to do something religious. You know, to set up this place as a memorial and so on. You know, in a sense, he, he does what so many have done in the history of the church. He, he limits God to a place. It's like a movement to a monastery. Yeah, or he sets up a, a pillar, as we see him doing here, kind of a monument, something to remember. He makes a vow, a kind of memorial. Now, as I say, not those things aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but they can immediately become just a religious thing that detracts us from God. God loves us so much. God met with Jacob at this point in his life that he needed to hear from God. He's lonely, he's alone, he's left home. He knows that if he goes home, his life's in doubt because of his brother's feelings toward him. He's been promised now by God this wonderful future. Interestingly, Bethel itself, when we see that Jacob is going to come and return and live here for a while, it's never the same. It's never the same when, when he goes back because it wasn't the same thing. That He was in love, in a sense, with that memory of what had been and that place where God had met him. You know, it's interesting that nothing spiritual ever happens in this place again, as recorded in Scripture. In fact, later you're going to see that Israel will turn this place into a place of pagan worship. And as it becomes later a symbol of backsliding Israel, it's like trying to live on past experience. Now, let me just, just again encourage you 
whatever experiences you've had, they're okay. Whatever places you've been when those things may have taken place, okay. But it is the God that you meet with that is the important thing. And that relationship can be maintained 24-7. We don't have to wait for a particular time or a conference or something. We can meet with God and have that relationship at any time we want to, simply by getting on our knees and speaking to him and crying out to him. Okay, I'm just going to take a little bit of this. We'll see how far we get. We're not going to go all the way to the end. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east and looked and behold a well in the field and lo, there were three flocks of sheep laying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep and put the stone again on the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. And he said unto them, Know you Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, Yeah, we know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, comes with the sheep. And he said, Lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep, and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks be gathered. So they don't want to lift the lid off the well until everybody's there. And until they roll the stone from the well's mouth, then we walk to the sheep. Now, there's a number of reasons this could have been. It could have been just the heat of the day. They didn't want to, I don't know how much water was in the well. They maybe just didn't want any evaporation. I don't know. Maybe they're just being lazy and were waiting for somebody else to come and move the, the lid of the well. That's what we see. Let's carry on. And while he yet spoke with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass that when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. There's a kind of an interesting contrast to that other well that we saw back with Ahimelech, the servant of Abraham, who when he gets there, he waits. And actually, uh, we find that it's uh, Becca that comes and waters uh, his camels and all those kind of things at that point. This time, Jacob is the one that takes the initiative here. But he obviously introduced himself. Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass that when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. Remember Laban already, we've seen liked things, liked stuff. When Ahimelech, Abraham's servant, comes, uh, sorry, it's not Ahimelech, it's Eliezer, correction, sorry, it's Eliezer. When Eliezer comes to try and find a bride for Isaac, Laban is already kind of wide-eyed because he sees all the the jewels and the goods and, and things that have been brought. But Laban said to him, surely thou art my bone and my flesh, and he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, should thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. I'll let you make of that what you will. But basically, Jacob clearly falls in love with Rachel. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. 
And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah, Zilpah, his maid, for a handmaid. Now, of course, Jacob now becoming the victim of deception, whereas previously he'd been the one that had been the the perpetrator. And it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said unto Laban, What is this that thou hast done to me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? Jacob is going to learn a lesson here in the rights of the firstborn. Interesting considering his own experience. And God allows all of these things, of course, so that Jacob will grow in knowledge and in grace. And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. I wonder how that made him feel at that moment as he starts to think about his own family situation. But then he says, fulfill her week and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. So Laban says, okay, well, you can have Rachel as well, but you've got to serve another week. Now, I want to clarify this because that term week in the Hebrew is not a seven-day period. It's very clearly at the end of verse 27 there, seven years. Now, I just mentioned this as an aside at this point because in, uh, in Hebrew, you have various weeks. You have a week of days, of course, we're familiar with that. It's the same as we have. But you also have a week of weeks. Now, typically, that will take you from the Passover up to Pentecost because you have seven times seven, seven days, so times seven, 49 days, and then the 50th day is Pentecost, Pente being five, so that's that week of weeks in the Jewish calendar. You also have a week of months, and typically their religious calendar is based around a seven-month period so you have a week of months in the calendar and then you also have as is being used here a week of years and this is used a number of times in scripture um again jacob did so and fulfilled her week and gave him rachel's daughter to wife also and laban gave rachel's daughter to bilhah sorry rachel's daughter bilhah his handmaid to be her maid and he went in also unto rachel and he loved also rachel more than leah and served with him yet seven other years so very clear the context now this is important i just throw this in just as a little aside here but in daniel this incredible prophecy in daniel chapter 9 begins with 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city and this prophecy is given one of the most amazing prophecies in scripture it actually pinpoints the very day that jesus would ride into jerusalem and it's fulfilled exactly to the day In terms of days, it's actually 173,880 days from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, as this prophecy says, until the coming of the Messiah. As Jesus, the only day in his entire ministry that he allows himself to be worshipped as king. But that 70 weeks there, again, the term in the Hebrew is what we just looked at here. It's a shabuim. It's a week of years. So it's 70 weeks of years. So it's 70 times 7 years. In other words, it's 490 years. And this incredible prophecy then that is given for the future of the nation. Because at the conclusion of the 490 years, Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. Now we're just going to leave you with this this morning. We've got some charts at the back that break this down a little bit more, uh, which may be helpful. But do you remember in Matthew, Peter 
comes to Jesus and says this. He says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Now, was Peter just trying to impress Jesus? Shall I forgive him seven times? Andrew is only going to forgive three times. Oh, seven. No, no, that's not what Peter's saying. It's interesting. If you actually look at the, the, the Greek here, the word is heos, and it refers to a specific point in time. And again, be careful, modern translations, most of them tend to mess this up a little bit. But it says here, shall I forgive him until seven times? It's a specific time frame. It's a Jewish mindset as well behind this, and we'll explain it for you. The answer that Jesus gives is also very interesting, because Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee, notice Jesus says, until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now, some versions will tell you 77 times. They totally miss it. They, they get it wrong. This, this is how it should be. Peter's saying, Jesus, shall I forgive seven times? And it's seven times seven in the context, which would be 49. Now, in terms of years for the Jews, Peter's saying, should I forgive up until the Jubilee? Because the Jubilee is the 50th year. And in the Jewish mindset, in their culture, in the 50th year, all the debts were to be wiped clean. That's what Peter's asking. It's a proper good question that he's asking Jesus. Jesus effectively says to him, no, don't forgive until the Jubilee. Don't let that be your, your benchmark. But until 70 times 7. Now, to the Jewish mind, that would take them straight back to Daniel chapter 9, to the 490 years. At the end of the 490 years, you may be aware of that prophecy, 483 years have been fulfilled up until the coming of Jesus. The remaining seven years are still waiting to be fulfilled. It will be that period of time that we refer to very often as the tribulation. That time that is yet to come when God will pour his wrath out on this unbelieving world. But it will be the last seven years for Israel after the church has been removed, where God will deal with them as a nation, and ultimately they will come back to know him. They will look upon him whom they've pierced and mourn, as we read in Zechariah. And the conclusion of that seven-year period will see Jesus return to establish his throne in his kingdom. Peter says, should I forgive until the jubilee? It's a good question. Jesus says, no, forgive until the kingdom comes. Forgive until Jesus returns and establishes his throne. I'll just share that with you as a little aside. We'll pick up from there. In fact, I'll tell you what, we've got just a few verses. Let's just go to the end of the chapter, and then we can start the new chapter next month. So, next week. Uh, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Surely the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon, and she conceived again and bare a son, and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons, therefore was his name called Levi. And then to conclude the chapter. And she conceived again and bare a son, and said, Now will I praise the Lord, therefore shall, uh, she called his name Judah, and left bearing. We'll look at the names and the meanings and things in the context of all this as we carry on next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it meets us right where we are. Father, thank you that we can see within Jacob's life, Lord, parallels of our own. Lord, so often we try to do our own thing our own way. So often we look at the, the natural, the practical. 
And yet, Lord, you're a God of the supernatural. Lord, we sang this morning, declared that you do impossible things. And Father, you do. So help us to trust you. Lord, in these days ahead, this coming week, Lord, if you tarry, we pray that we would trust you a little bit more than we did last week. That we would trust you with our finances. We would trust you with our possessions. We would trust you with our thought life. Lord, with every part of our being. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us, just as you gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you've given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Promises, Lord, that are just too lofty, too wonderful for us to comprehend. And Lord, you've promised us an eternity with you. Lord, we've been given this privilege of knowing that we will inherit all things in Christ. So Lord, we just thank you for this. We thank you that you're a God who loves us beyond anything we can imagine. Lord, help us to reciprocate by loving you back. Just loving you, loving you, loving you, Lord, with everything we have. Lord, not out of a sense of duty, but just simply because of who you are. We just thank you for this time this morning. May we continue growing in knowledge and grace for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you this coming week.